It's Mel. And it's Kel. Episode 2 of It's Called Culture. Ever heard of it? This is Episode 2, Immigration from Island to Industry. We're glad to have you back with us. You survived the first intro episode and you returned. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> glad to know that we have some listeners and you guys are enjoying our podcast. I hope. <laughs> so I actually want to start this with a, a quick story because we got together and we were doing some research. Drove two hours out of my way so that we can go to a library together and do some research oh, for this okay. episode. The local library. The local library, because where better to go than ground zero to learn about immigration to this area. And we first went to the local you know, public library, and then we realized there was a Portuguese library called Casa Sudad, which translates loosely to like house of longing. Yeah. It's four o'clock on a Tuesday. And we are exiting this library. <laughs> yep. We see an older Portuguese man walking towards us. He looks at us and says in the most spot on Portuguese accent, no school today. <laughs> and Kel, I'm just looking at you because you did not know how to answer that question. <laughs> I had no idea because it's like, yeah. No school because, yeah, there is no school because I'm not in school. But then I didn't realize that he just thought, like, we were students. <laughs> like, we were young kids. Like, we should have been in school. So I think you initially responded, no, <laughs> because, like, like I'm 35. Like, no, there's no school today. But then you realized that he thought that meant that there was no school for, like, regular school-age children. And you were like, wait, no. Like, I don't know if there's school. Like, I'm not in school. Um, and he was, like, and he, mortified. He just looked back and his response was, oh, my God. Like, he was mortified thinking of the fact that, like, he was, he has these two young girls that should be in school. And here we, like, we pull up in Melissa's family minivan <laughs> i'm the driver mind you Melissa's the driver we pull up in her family minivan a baby seat a car seat and a back seat it's like Melissa is a mother <laughs> and this man is mad that we're not in school learning addition and subtraction um yeah so that that was just the epic cherry on top of like just going into like research immigration but he turned around i didn't really understand because he was walking into the library and right after that interaction with us he turned around and walked right out of the space he, he, like, he did not enter the library he went back to his car and he went home and i don't really know what that was about but he was pissed that like two young girls should be in school <laughs> oh yeah that was uh but that's just like a good a great example because like my father never knew what grade i was in or like he just never knew like he like also didn't even know half the time what school I was in. <laughs> okay, so like I don't understand like one school you had to pay for the Catholic school and one you did at my public high school. So how do you not know which one I'm in? 
in his defense, <laughs> there was that time in third grade when he tried to pull you out of Catholic school and he send did. you to the local public school. He did. And I hated it. Nothing against public school, but I just, I hated it. <laughs> it lasted oh, maybe a week, two so, weeks. Like two weeks the most. Until you cried and came back to our third grade. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I've read more about immigration in the past two months than I have in my entire life. I have lived it with these people who immigrated here. Our whole family, everybody's family and our communities are all immigrants. And having lived it was one thing, but growing up, you don't care enough to like start asking your elders what their immigration story no. was. So going back and actually going to my grandparents and going to my parents and the people in my life and hearing their stories was just so inspiring and like eye-opening for me. Um, things that, that I'm learning now at 35 years old that I didn't know about my own family. Right. Puts everything in perspective in your life, realizing like what they sacrificed. They sacrificed so much coming here and to like pretty much nothing and to like come here is to have like the American, you know, they say the American dream and try to like have a, make themselves a living and have a family here, have a little bit of money to just, they were, ha they were content being like just probably middle class if <laughs> they had a little bit more. Okay. But they just always kind of wanted to be on that line. If they can afford to like help their kids go through college, they were happy. I think growing up, obviously I knew like families immigrated here and the reasons that I, I guess, put in my mind, I heard a lot about wanting to avoid the draft and the war yeah. and that sort of thing. And as like, okay, that's the reason that families or my family or whoever's family immigrated here. And that made sense to me to, an, to a certain extent. But then I started reading more and researching more and then you find out about all the other mm -hmm. pieces and parts of it too natural disasters right. and that volcanic eruption in Fayal um one of the islands in maybe the late 1950s that actually was one of the triggers for a lot of the immigration because there was like a refugee act yeah. that was passed so that they could actually get refugees over into the U.S. because prior to that in the U.S. the immigration laws had been super strict and there was quotas and limits on how many people could immigrate mm -hmm. and that sort of blew the doors wide open on the thing and and allowed uh, many more people to immigrate um, at the same time from this this area. One of the islands currently is on Volcano Watch, um, San George. People have evacuated the island because they are currently waiting for it to, I guess, erupt the volcano. It's kind of crazy. It's been quite sad. Yeah. A lot of these people are going to be displaced. And just crazy how it's like them living on a volcano island is like just back burner on them. Like, I don't know. Like, how could you live on a volcano? Yeah, it's crazy. So I think what they've experienced is like thousands of small to moderate size earthquakes. Earthquakes, yep. And... So now they're just kind of waiting for potential eruption or just larger earthquakes right. or whatever it is that's going to happen. But um, that is wild to me that, like you said, they're living on these 
what are known to be volcanic islands, but they're not dormant. They're right. very active yeah. and could erupt at any time. Like I've got a trip out there in August. I'm going in the summer and like part of the hikes and stuff that you do is you you literally you swim in the mouth of the volcano in some places or you hike the rim of the volcano in other places and like all I need is to just be encrusted by lava (laughs) lava, as I'm just trying to get a good Instagram photo. You kind of laugh about it now, but it is a sad um, situation because, like, you know, it's not something here in the States, like, living in the East Coast, not something that we will ever probably, we'll we'll never experience that. We get the, we get like a really bad blizzard or, you know, maybe a really bad hurricane, but not an actual volcano erupted (laughs) and like displacing many people. Yeah, so they so that was another reason for people to immigrate, uh, whether they were from the island that had the volcanic eruption, you know, back in the late fifties, or if they were in neighboring islands, just the fear or the potential of having that happen to you was enough to want to get out of Dodge. I, I think. would want to get out. <laughs> right. Those are two reasons. I think one of the third reasons that I just heard brought up by my dad which I didn't really realize at the time or I didn't realize was a thing was that the island was getting overpopulated. Oh, I didn't know that either. So it was just the population was just increasing. You just people having kids and there's nowhere to go if you weren't getting off the island. Right. You're just accumulating people, people yeah. and then there were limited opportunities for what those people could do. So there was a lot ton of poverty. The only life you had ahead of you was, you know, you saw whatever your parents were doing and they're farming and they're doing whatever they're doing. They're getting married, having kids, and raising a homestead, and that was really all your life was ever going to be in that same town you grew up in, really, or the same village you grew up in. So that whole idea of coming to America was sort of their way out. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. That they were being, like, overpopulated. makes sense because these islands are relatively small, so you can just imagine if people just keep having kids, where are you going to put all these people? So I think you started seeing Azorian immigration to the U.S. in late 1800s, early yeah. 1900s. Obviously, we're telling you we're children of immigrants. So like our parents obviously didn't immigrate that early. Um, but some people did. And there was a process to kind of getting people over here. You couldn't just kind of mass immigrate over. Typically, it was, you know, once it opened up more in the 50s, 60s, 70s, the process was generally, once you had someone that came over, whether it was a work visa or coming over because they had known someone that was already here, they had to be here for five years. Yep. And get American citizenship during that time before they could essentially call over any of their relatives. They would call it a shamada. (laughs) (laughs) They're waiting for their shamada to come over. They're waiting for the call. And obviously there was paperwork involved and I'm sure there were actual requirements. And I'll get into that when we talk specifically about our family's Mm -hmm. immigration stories about you know, what was necessary in order for them to come over. But 
they had to have a sponsor here in the mm-hmm. U.S. So whether it was like the family member who's calling you over, giving you that shamada, um, yep. whether they were going to be the ones to say, I'm going to be your sponsor, and you're responsible for that, that person. person for the next five years. So if they need assistance, if anything happens with that person, you are responsible for them. And you also had to have jobs lined up or you had to have documentation or paperwork signed that said you had a job ready and waiting for you when you arrived here. And so something interesting that my dad told me was that the local fish market, so these people were settling in similar communities and there was a a local fish market, obviously run by a Portuguese man. And he, it was a small place. He didn't have job openings, but he would just sign all of the, because he was a place of employment, he would sign off that he had job openings for all of these people so that they could immigrate over. And there were no (laughs) jobs at the fish fish market market. for these people when they arrived, but they knew that they, there, it's a hardworking culture and they knew that they would find work when they got here. They just needed to get here. Right. And so the local fish market was (laughs) signing for all these people to have jobs to come over here, which was crazy. A couple of things that are interesting about the process of coming over is the way that names were handled. Oh, yes. And, and name, <laughs> name changes. changes, birthdays. Nothing was, I don't think things weren't recorded correctly. <laughs> you either had a whole different last name when you came over or you had a whole different birthday when you came over. And... Their names were, I think I noticed like a few different things happening with names. Like sometimes there were literal translations. So whatever your name, last name was in Portuguese. They translated it into the English word. Right. So for you, like your last name, we just learned this. Your last name is Ferreira. Yep. And that meant like a blacksmith yep yeah so i would i would be i guess kelly blacksmith kelly smith (laughs) i like kelly blacksmith though um cut that (laughs) so yeah so ferrera would turn into smith branco Mm -hmm. would turn into white because that's the little literal translation of the word Um, sometimes I feel like they would just truncate the words like Pereira would be Perry. So the names were completely butchered on the way in. Um, my grandfather actually had his middle and last name transposed. Oh, hi. His last name is different than all of his brothers. So his brothers all came over and his paperwork got messed up i don't know if it's like you know garbage in garbage out like (laughs) like did he did he fill out the paperwork incorrectly yep probably (laughs) probably did not know what he was looking at but also they could have just transposed it and not realized what was happening so his his middle and last name are flipped and then just it just never gets changed so he has a different last name from the rest of his all his brothers have the same last name and he's got a different last last name. name and their last name is his middle name now right yeah it's wild. That's like my father has two different birthdays. He was born in July, but his no, sorry, he was born in May, and his recorded birthday is, or I should say, American birthday is July. 
So that was true. <laughs> that was truly like an immigration thing, or I believe it was an immigration thing. So that was immigration Mission paperwork. Thing, yeah, birthday change. That's interesting. So like everything his like paperwork here says it's July. Well, my mom likes to say it didn't happen when he immigrated here. That happened because my uncle, because my grandfather wasn't paying attention. But my father, in his father's defense, says it's immigration. <laughs> so I can never get the right story on that. Maybe one day I will. But um, so all his like actual paperwork here, his like driver's license is all the July date. So that's interesting because I've always heard of the two birthday thing as so like my dad has two birthdays, my grandmother has two birthdays. And it was always to me because you were born like at home in your house right. in the village and it didn't get recorded in paperwork until you drove to the city, which was like, you know, it's two hours by car now yeah. on the other side of the island. But then it was like, that's they didn't I'm... even have cars. So, right. so it took you two weeks to kind of get word to the city to record the paperwork that you had a birth yeah. of a child and then they just recorded home. that date that yeah. you got there not the date I the kid was actually born pretty convinced that's what happened but my dad said it's not <laughs> so i don't know if he feels some type of ways and he doesn't want to admit that that's his his own dad screwed it up but to each his own, I guess. But I feel like it is that. And that's a lot a, of people. And that's a decent difference. That's like a two-month difference. Two months. <laughs> like my dad's like two weeks. And like my grandmother's just like a matter of a couple so weeks that's too. That's why my dad doesn't want to admit that his dad waited two months to go register him. <laughs> he was the last, like the last born baby. So at that point, it's like doesn't matter. <laughs> right, right. The other thing that we know happened to them upon immigration was vaccination, oh, right? Yep. And yeah. and so and I honestly I haven't even looked it up to know like what vac what they were getting vaccinated for at that time, or it might have been a cocktail of things that they I were getting vaccinated a, for. I think it was a cocktail of many different things. But they have a very unique, distinguishable scar from it um akin to like branding a cow essentially like yeah it's it, like imprinted it's an indent probably at least a quarter inch in their arm you know size of a quarter um but more oval shaped generally and all of the immigrants who came over at that time have that mm -hmm. scar yeah. the same scar like some people have like a small like penny size or like some people have like almost a quarter size like my mom's is huge mm. so it's like god knows what and, and i honestly they don't even know because i've asked and they just say oh it's just we got that it was just we had to get it we had to get it done that's just what they did right that like, was wait, like but you don't know what you just put inside you <laughs> <laughs> we're not gonna get political <laughs> no we're not but it's just at that time they just they didn't know Right. They just were told like they needed it done and so they did it. If you're trying to come over to you know, I would I would have done it too. Right. I mean yeah. that was that was your only way to enter, enter but yeah. it le it left them marred. <laughs> yeah, it's like a big marking on their arms. Like most and like most people have it. My mom's is huge. Mm. And it's like damn, <laughs> what do they do to you? Stories that I've read about in some of our research um, are so crazy to me. 
because of the way that these people were so brave. You know, there's stories of most families would split up. So there's stories of either men or women coming and immigrating alone mm-hmm. because then you would kind of get things sorted out and then you kind of call for your family or get your family, the rest of your family to come over um, once you had things established. But the stories I read of like women, decently young women traveling alone, leaving their kids and husband in another f- land, coming to a land where you don't know the language, you don't know anything here, you arrive with one suitcase of belongings and an address scribbled on a piece of paper to someone that you were supposed to go and meet. Wild. I could never imagine. <laughs> and so this one woman's story, she showed up this way with her one suitcase at Boston Logan Airport and her family member more of a distant family member that was already here in America that was supposed to pick her up at the airport mixed up the dates. Maybe it was your dad, Kel. Maybe your dad was supposed to pick him up, pick them up. But they mixed up the dates and didn't show up. So this poor woman with obviously no cell phone, no way of communicating with anybody because she doesn't know the language is standing in Logan airport with her suitcase for four hours, waiting for her her ride to pick her up who did not show. And eventually someone kind of looked at her and was like, do you need help? And she just, all she could do was show them the piece of paper with the address of where she was supposed to be traveling to. And eventually they somehow coordinated a ride for her over to this person's home. But I just can't imagine how you do that. No, like, no, that I couldn't imagine, especially going somewhere that you don't speak the language or can even read any signs. And you don't have a phone. Yeah. You don't. Like, it's not like in today's world where you have, have everything at your fingertips. We can Google Translate. We can try to at least get ourselves around, but not bad. That's actually quite terrifying. So I wouldn't want to picture my parents like stuck at the airport with one little suitcase. Your waiting. mom by herself. No, no. <laughs> like a thousand miles away from her husband and her family. That's like it's devastated to hear that. Like, oh, that makes me so sad to think like this little lady. Because it's like, what do you do if no one helps you? Like, what if no one like no one helped her? Like, <laughs> just nobody was like. Then you got I'm a not. Tom Hanks lost in <laughs> translation situation where they just live at the airport. Like, eventually, maybe, obviously, like. She probably would have seen other Portuguese people there. But I'm saying, like, what if somebody was just like, oh, I'm not going to help. I don't want to do my job today. <laughs> she, she needed to wait for the next airplane to come in from Sata. <laughs> like, that's that actually makes me really sad. It. I mean, it was wild. I was, it was um, seeing other stories of people who would come over. And so, so the climate in the Azores is more tropical. Like, it doesn't doesn't get down to freezing temperatures it doesn't snow so so i'll just keep saying that (laughs) so people would arrive here and like their plane would be landing in boston and it would be snowing and they'd be like what is going on like they 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 just had never even seen snow before and these are like adults and that's just wild like you're coming to a foreign land different climate different language just different in every possible way and you're having to experience this all together at the same time right 
They must have, like, just thought, like, America was, like, the States was just probably, they don't know what snow is. So they're probably, like, is this is what it looks like? This is what I like. I came to this. I came here. This is what the ground, like, this is what it looks like. Like, where are my hydrangeas? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. It's, I could never imagine, but they did it. A lot of them did it, and they came on over. And that's, we're kind of already talking about, more modern day right. immigration like if you go back to that late 1800s early 1900s yeah. immigration i mean they were coming over on like, like ships on ships rocking yeah. across the atlantic ocean and they were like not passengers aboard no. the titanic they were pretty much like in the cargo mm-hmm. hold and they were like coming to work on like farms or like whaling ships back in the day right and they were you know, the stories I read from those times were literally they would, I don't know, the crew that was manning the ship or whatever would come down and just like throw pieces of bread into their cargo holds and like people wouldn't survive the trip. It's so sad. Which is just wild to me. Like you want to get out of your land so badly that you're willing to risk your life. And I can't even imagine how long that trip took on a boat to get here. But by ship. Right. So you're just making this journey to a new land to start over to give yourself, your kids, your grandkids a better life. Crazy. That's insane. It just puts everything like it puts your life in perspective when you like think you're having a bad day or whatever. It's like look what you're like your family or your parents or your aunts and your uncles, grandparents, like look what they did. Like they sacrificed pretty much everything to like come here and they didn't they know and they didn't and another thing is they didn't know if this was gonna work out like what if they came here and it was all for nothing and it didn't work out for them and they had to go back you know what i mean it's like it's a toss-up it's a gamble it's so interesting that you said that because something that i had no idea about my family and i just learned as i was starting to have these conversations with my parents was that my and this actually happened on both sides of my family, but let's talk specifically my mom's side. My great-great-grandmother was married, and they had immigrated here, so kind of that early wave of immigration. And they were here. She got pregnant with my great-grandmother, and things were getting bad in the U.S. at that time. I think it was World War One, and then the Great Depression Mm -hmm. or whatever um, in that time frame that – they said, okay, we're going to send – we're going back to the Azores. So they sent my great-great-grandmother pregnant back to the Azores. Her husband stayed here to kind of work some things out, and he was going to meet her back there. And he just never went back. So, so he stayed here. They never heard from him again. And she was back in the Azores, ended up having my great-grandmother there and then my grandmother was born there eventually my grandmother maybe 40 50 years later immigrated here and was able to get her mom back over here but isn't that crazy wild like so so sometimes they did come here and it didn't work out and they went back right and then they still wanted to come back 50 years later heard like you don't hear a lot of those stories 
I, I never knew I that. I never knew that either. Growing up, I had no idea. And so that that's on my mom's side. And on my dad's side, something similar happened where he said that my great-grandmother, so my grandmother's mom was born here. And then it, because she must have, you know, her parents must have immigrated here in that early wave as well. She was born here, was here for at least five years, like in school here, knew English, Mm -hmm. spoke English perfectly well. And then they went back. I can't remember why he said they went back to the Azores, but they went back, ended up having my grandmother who doesn't speak English. And then they eventually, again, many years later, had to immigrate back to America all over again. But in both cases, I had great-grandparents who were here in America as part of early immigration, which was crazy to find that out now. Oh, that's amazing. I don't know that many stories far back as, like, great-grandparent-wise. You always, like, you have, like, you still have grandmothers that are still alive. Right. Like, I don't. (laughs) And they're all gone. Right, right. (laughs) So it's wild that you can kind of get those stories still from them. Yeah. Yep. Um. How did your parents immigrate here? So basically, mine's is probably like a romance love story. Not really. (laughs) Um, So the reason why my mom came was because she got married to my dad. But like they got married out there and then he ditched her, came down here and like got things going here. And so that's then he went back to go get her and then they came together. So that was like their that's how she kind of came, but my dad came prior before he like got married. He actually, my dad was kind of like a little gypsy. He went to Toronto for a little while, hung around there, and then came to the states. And then he decided he like wanted to stay in the states. Um, so my so uh, my godmother, his sister, is the one that did his shabada for him. So he she called him on over. She was his sponsor, and then he got here. Um, and then he, and at some point him and my mom got married, but they got married out there cause she wanted to, because of her parents were out there still. So they got married out there and then he had, she had to wait a little while to get, to come on over. And then when she was called to come on over to, she, then that's when she came, but he like had to go back to go get her cause she was not going to come out. She wasn't going to come down by herself. <laughs> That sounds about right. Yeah. She was not going to be the woman standing with the suitcase at Logan Airport with him forgetting the day to pick her up. So they basically, like, my mom only kind of came because she got married to my dad. And my dad was like, well, I'm moving to America. And so she was like, okay, well, I just married you. So I guess I got to move to America, too. Um, But my dad had already, like, prior plans of coming down to like the states like that's why he like also went to canada like i said he went to toronto for a little while to see if he liked there but for some reason he didn't like it don't know why it's like it's a nice city <laughs> it's the same thing as here it's like just another city i'm not sure why it, i don't know if they just didn't have like the portuguese like population they did at the time and i think they i mean i don't here. i don't know comparatively yeah. what it was to here but i, I mean that's a huge Portuguese center. Right. It like it is still like now. I just don't know maybe at the time if it wasn't. And um so he just he got so he pretty much got sponsored by his sister and then that's why he like that's really the So only he didn't why. come on like a work visa or anything like no, that. No, just like yeah, just for my godmother she called him on over. 
Yeah. My dad's parents and everything were here already. So how long was he here without your mom? Um, just they said like a few, just like a few months. It was it. It was just like a few months because they had already all the paper. They were already doing like all that paperwork stuff. So he only came here to get like, you know, like an apartment and get furniture and get all that like ready for her to come. So she didn't like, that's always the story that I heard. So she like, they got married. He ditched her. <laughs> he ditched her. I was like, all right, I'll get it. I'll get everything ready back at home for you. And then um, it was just, they said it was just like a few months. How did they get apartments? I don't know. And like my dad had like no, they had no money. That's a huge thing too it, to talk about. They are coming over without a dollar to their right. name. Like my, on my mom's side, my grandparents had to borrow money for the plane ticket, which was extraordinarily expensive for them at that time. Right. It's still expensive now to fly <laughs> out there, but he had, they had to borrow money. So they came not only do you not have a dollar to your name, but you're coming here owing money to somebody because you had to borrow money to, money come. to come here. Yeah. And then on my dad's side, they sold their f- family cows and chickens so that they uh, could earn money to come buy their plane tickets to get the family over here. That's crazy. So I'm like, Dad, you had to sell a cow to it's buy a plane ticket to America. Like that's insane. It's like when people get married and they do the like, what is it, the dow- dowries where they they get like the cows. And it's like you're giving like a cow to like marry the daughter. Your parents <laughs> doing it for uh, a trip to America. A trip to America. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um. So yeah, they would come with no money whatsoever. So yeah. that's just frightening. Like I don't think I'd be able to do that without like having some savings built up right. and like an emergency fund. And like they didn't, they, they came with nothing but the will to work. Yeah. My dad had like, it was a very small, like one bedroom apartment that he and my mom eventually like lived in. It's like not too far away actually today. It's actually not too far away from my parents' house. That's so kind of funny how it's just all in like close proximity. Um, and then and I believe that's where my brother was born at that apartment. And then eventually they moved out of that apartment and got maybe like a two bedroom. Cause then that's where, I, that's when I was born. And then obviously then they bought their house on the road, but yeah, like they had nothing. It's insane. I mean, so my dad's family, they were a family of five. And when they came over, so my dad was already 16 when he immigrated here. Yeah. Your parents are like, their stories are like interesting because they came when they were a little younger. Like my parents came down, they were already like, a lot older in life like in their 30s and like also my father's like the youngest of like 10 kids so it's so you're i feel like you have more interesting stories because they were younger when they came down <laughs> right like your parents remind me more of my grandparents generation okay yeah right like they're almost more on that wave yeah. than than my parents were just different and even even my parents they immigrated pretty far apart in time like, I think my mom's family came in the early 60s and my dad's family came in the late 70s. So there was a significant okay. gap between when they when those two families came. But my dad came when they were – when he was 16, again, family of five. They stayed with my grandmother's brother who was married and had two of his own kids in, like, right. a two-bedroom apartment, yeah. a tiny apartment. So there was nine people living in this apartment until they could find – 
separate housing for my grandmother's family of five. Right. Um, and actually my grandmother, I was talking to her just recently about this and she was, um, cracking me up because they came, I mean, they know the exact date. She says, yeah, I came over December 30th, 1977. And she said the first time I saw snow was X date, you know, January Mm -hmm. 4th, I saw snow for the first time. And then very shortly after that was the blizzard of 78, which obviously everybody from this area talks about and it was like a huge deal and everything shut down for a whole week and it was i don't know three feet of snow um in all the roads and everything was just closed and my grandmother now to this day in 2022 tells me that that's the best time she had in america (laughs) was the blizzard of 78 shortly after she immigrated here where she was home with her family her entire family was stuck in the house and she was just cooking for them and they were all together and nobody had any obligations. And she just said that was her, that's her favorite memory in America. That's amazing. Because it's just like, it's a snowstorm. No one can do anything. And it's like, it's almost like you're, you're just like safe. It's like no one can go out. No one can go do anything. So it's like, you know, your kid's safe at home with you. And like, oh, that's, a, that's so sweet. And uh, right. And so her kids. So again, my dad was 16. He was the middle child. Um, he has an older, he had an older sister and then a younger brother. Um, the two older ones, so my dad and his older sister went right to work as soon as they got here. Yeah. So they immigrated here. He's 16 years old. He went down to the local factory and got a job, as did his sister and both of his parents. So they had four people working jobs and collecting checks and using them to support right. the household for an extended period of time. Until right. they got yep. married and moved out and could live on their own, essentially. But um, I think that's how they were able to get by was literally putting the children to work, to work right away for the family. Which was a common – it was just a common thing. Your your children were put to, like, to work. Like, my dad worked out on the islands because my – so my parents came – like I mentioned, my parents came a lot later – they were like, my brother was in 84. My brother was born in 84, so they came like in 82, 1982, so a lot later. So my dad, out on in the Azores, my dad worked, and all the kids worked. He was like, he. my grandfather was like a cow farmer, so he just like maintained all the cows, brought milk, milk down to where, got the milk, brought it down to wherever it needed to go, and then he would like collect the money and bring it back, and it's like, can you imagine walking around and like with, you know, crates of cow milk delivering milk to everybody? Um, yeah, but that was like a common, you kind of had kids so the kids could kind of help you out. I mean, it's exactly you know, that. I'm sure it's like not the, obviously the only reason, but it's like one of the main reasons like you put, you put your kids to work. And like here in America, like when they got here, it's so interesting because America had like rules. Child or- labor laws. <laughs> I'm not sure when those started, but like, but there were like age limitations still. Like their youngest, his youngest brother, they can only work till certain times, right? And so, like my dad's younger brother was, he had to go to school. He was a school aged child. He couldn't work yet um, for the family, but had he was working when they were in the Azores. So, like in the Azores, it was work. If you could walk, you could work. It was, they were all working for the family there. Their education system out there was 
completely <laughs> non-educational, I should say. I, like, I don't want to like judge it, but it's not the greatest. <laughs> it wasn't maybe at that. It wasn't at that time. We'll say today, obviously, is a different story, but. <laughs> it it was not a priority so education was not yeah. at all prioritized there was only required education for i think four years i want to say there was a, a law change at some point that went from like four years to maybe six years of education required i think my aunt got stuck on like the like the uh, year the that it changed over like she it. was supposed to be done and then she had to go for two more years but it was literally like four years of of Can you education. imagine just going to school up to like fourth grade and you're done? And that's what they all did. You just like, you can pack up a briefcase and get to work <laughs> after fourth grade. It's it's insane. And I remember thinking that was crazy. Like growing up, we'd always have to do like school projects. I was just going to mention. <laughs> where you had to like write, you know, about your parents and you'd had to write like, okay, what was their like highest level of education? What, what high school did they go to? What college did they go to? And I'm like, my dad went to sixth grade. Like, <laughs> I was like, I had to leave the whole thing blank. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, there was no college. There was no high school. I had none of that. It was all blank. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was and i i'm sure like i just knowing that there was like all portuguese kids like the school knew <laughs> everybody's was blank okay i don't even know why they would send that home as an assignment right but it's like no one was going to college <laughs> like we are first generation americans like, here. like we're gonna be the ones going to college yeah, not we, them we are going to college for the first time <laughs> in our families So my dad's side of the family, the reason they immigrated so late comparatively to some of the other, you know, my mom's side or other um, immigration stories was that they tried, they tried to come out. So my, my grandmother had family that had already immigrated to Toronto. Okay. And when they tried to call her over, give her her shamada, um, you know, you've got paperwork you have to fill out. And I guess the Canadian rules were different than the American rules at the time for, you know, what you had to meet to satisfy yeah. coming over. And apparently literacy was one of the criteria and it didn't have to be, you didn't have to be, you know, English speaking, but you had to demonstrate some literacy, whether right. it was in your native language or not. And my grandmother could, my grandfather was illiterate because he just never had any schooling, grew up on a farm, working on a farm, right. doing, you know, carpentry things, whatever it was, and in a, in a small village. So they denied, they kept denying, because I guess in Canada, maybe both parties, even if you weren't the primary person being called over for immigration, both husband and wife had to be both, literate. Yeah. Makes sense. So they were denied and they had to wait and wait. And eventually um, her brother came over on a work visa to the to America. And five years later, once he had his citizenship, he could call her over. And my dad describes them coming over. Again, five people, they had three suitcases to their name. Okay. <laughs> so, so three suitcases worth of stuff, belongings, for five people and the things that they chose to bring were like like these suitcases didn't have like 
you know, necessities and clothing for everybody. It was like religious figurines. <laughs> like, like there were just Holy Spirit figurines <laughs> in these suitcases. My dad said that my grandfather actually like made a bit of a business of making these little boxes for people to like package their religious figurines to immigrate to America with. My mother would have needed that because she came on over and had her baby Jesus wrapped <laughs> with a blanket. <laughs> and she kept it on her on her lap the whole plane ride over. <laughs> Did she have to pay for an extra ticket for, <laughs> for baby Jesus? I would hope not. <laughs> Apparently like this was like a very intricate like box making he wouldn't just like make a box and give you a box to put your baby Jesus in. Yeah. It was, he would construct this box, leave the top off of it. He would bring it to you. You would place your baby Jesus in it. You'd wrap it up, whatever, to keep it sound. And then he would like nail the cover back onto the box. So it was like, they were not opening baby Jesus at customs. That wouldn't work today. Like, they would be like, ma'am, we need to open this. <laughs> what would you do? Okay. Like, we need to open this and see what's inside here. So my dad's suitcase had not clothing, not shoes, not belts, not necessities, not utensils. Tea. Tea leaves. <laughs> tea leaves. Like, ground up tea leaves. He's like, it was my, like... Shad Puish. And I can't express enough what somebody coming through JFK Airport, because I think they had a connecting flight, right. somebody coming through JFK Airport with a suitcase full of basically marijuana looking <laughs> substances <laughs> and nothing else with a one way ticket. <laughs> like, what in the world? I don't know how he got through those customs. Uh, what a time. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure those, like, agents at the airport, probably at that point, they probably were used to seeing all this, like, well, maybe to them, weird things. Like, I don't... Like like a wheel of Saint-Georges cheese? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I remember, like, going, going to Portugal on my visit, like, with my parents, and they would have, like, those, you know, those bags that are, like, coolers. And this was, like, obviously pre 9-11 so you could kind of at that point you could like pack pretty much and bring anything you wanted almost like i felt anyway because i just remember my parents had like the freezer cooler bags and they would have like fish in it <laughs> <laughs> and i'm like wait why do we have fish <laughs> i don't That's know such why. a portuguese move so it's like Damn, I'm sure at the airport at that time, they would be used to seeing this stuff. <laughs> so in more modern times, I need to tell you that my I went to the Azores in like 2002 when I was in high school, and it was the first time I had ever been. My grandparents went, and it might have been their first trip back since they immigrated over here. Yeah. Um, I think it was my dad's first time back, or maybe he had gone one other time. It was my mom's first visit out there because she had been born here and so we're all together as a family again this is post 9-11 this is 2002 okay so this is post 9-11 and because 
we were going back and the house that my um, dad grew up in, they still owned it out there. They never sold it. So they sold the cows to come over. They never sold the house. But it was as they left it. So like we're talking 1970s era remote village island house, which we'll talk more about that. But so they wanted to, my, my dad and my grandfather had plans to kind of fix up the house a little bit while they were there. We were on a three-week vacation. They were going to do some remodel. Always three weeks. You always take three weeks to go out there. <laughs> always. <laughs> yes. And so they were going to do some work out there while while they um, visited and vacationed. And we, <laughs> we get to the airport and my grandfather had a garment bag like for suits. Yep. And it was filled with like hammers. <laughs> Just every tool imaginable, saw like hand saws, like, and they were like, "Sir, you know what just happened a few years back, like, right?" <laughs> I cannot let you take the hacksaw in a garment bag as your carry on. Like, this is just not going to fly. So there was a whole ordeal. I think I think he had to like leave stuff at the airport that he could come and claim when. He, he returned. Back. Okay. The, like, they gave him like a ticket or something. You can pick up your hammers when you come home, sir. I would hope so. 